uh, to Romans chapter 5. I'll let you just take a moment to find that, Romans chapter 5. And we'll come to that uh, a little bit later, but just wanted you to find it. Now recently I've heard politicians and commentators on television and radio say that Britain is a broken society. And of that there can be no doubt. Uh, we only got to look around us, see the amount of binge drinking, uh, the lack of morality, even integrity, even common courtesy, even manners, we find that our society is indeed broken. However, it's not only Britain that's broken. The fact is the whole world is broken. The whole world is broken. The Middle East right now is broken. Men are trying to fix it. And the more they try to fix it, it seems to be the worse that it gets. North Africa, as we speak, half a dozen Arab nations are rioting in the capital cities of their nations. Europe is struggling to keep its confederation of nations together because of the economic meltdown uh, in several of those countries. Greece is looking at a bailout of 97 billion pounds. And that's just to get them bailed out. Ireland has just been bailed out. Something like 70 billion pounds. Greece, all these countries have maxed out their nation's credit card. Brokenness everywhere. What is the cause of this brokenness and the unraveling of nations and peoples? What has caused divisions and tensions between communities and families and countries and peoples? The short answer, of course, you'd expect me to say, is sin. No question about that. I want to give you the long answer this morning. Because what were the consequences of that sin in the Garden of Eden? Separation was the immediate and long-lasting consequence. Separation. To borrow a phrase from Milton, it was paradise lost. This is clearly spelled out for us in Genesis chapter 3, which you don't need to turn to. As soon as their first parents sinned, they immediately felt alienated from God, and they ran and hid themselves. They started a game of hide-and-seek, only it wasn't a game and God wasn't amused. And ever since that day, there is man has been trying to hide from God, but there's no place to hide. Never was then, never will be. So the first consequence of the fall in the Garden of Eden is very obviously separation from God. Something of eternal consequence happened 
on that day. Man was put out of the garden. God separated him from himself. And man ever since has been hiding. Trouble is he doesn't know what he's hiding from or he doesn't know from whom he's hiding. But God knows and God in his grace and mercy has come to seek him and to find him. And so whenever man and God are reunited, the world starts to make sense because he finds that God has got a plan and a purpose and a future and a hope. Colossians 1.16, Paul said that all things were created through him and for him. Revelation 4 and 11. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created, and by your will. Miss the meaning in all of this, and we miss the very point of life itself. That's why Paul said in Acts 17, 28, In him we live and we move and we have our being. But man was separated from God, and he's separated from God now. And that has been the core issue in all of our troubles ever since that day. Whether it's within nations, or whether it's within families or individuals, there has been this separation. The second consequence of separation from God is separation from each other. Now, the vast majority of us feel the need to interact. We're sociable creatures. We want companionship. We desire company. It's in our psyche. That's the way that God wired us. Now, there are the odd individual who are loners, reclusive. But the vast majority, it's just built into us and we realize that we want and we need company. That's why there are so many fraternities and clubs and societies and groups meeting here and there. That's why, for example, we have cell groups in our church, home groups. And we have that and we have men meeting and we have women meeting and we have children and young people meeting because we desire that. We, we like to be around people for the best part of it. God said in Genesis, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help, someone who will be comparable to him. And as we said the other week, he got all the animals to pass by Adam and he named every one of them. But even within all of the animal kingdom, there was not one that was comparable to Adam. And so God took a rib from Adam's side and he made a woman. And Adam said, now this is flesh of my flesh and this is bone of my bone. And she was comparable in every way for Adam. Now, of course, there are times when we all need to be and like to be alone. Need a little bit of space from time to time to read a book or to go a walk or to whatever we do. But there's a difference in being alone and being lonely. 
Big difference. You can be lonely in a crowd. But generally speaking, we want to be in company. But in Eden, in chapter 4, as soon as man was separated from God, then it wasn't too long until he was separated from each other. They were separated from each other. And this is where we see how Cain slew Abel. The first family was at war. Separation from God is the root of family breakdown. And the fruit of it is heartache and tears and alienation. And although there are many resources we have today and organizations that will try to help fix the symptoms of all of that, but the reality is it's the root of it, and that's estrangement from God. And that's why, friends, that even Christian families can fall apart and often do. Someone or other has separated themselves from God and His Word. That's the bottom line of it. So, divorce rates have gone through the roof. The very fabric of the family unit is being torn apart. And the further a nation separates itself from God, the more inevitable these things will be and the more they will happen. I mean, we wonder why Britain is such a state today. We wonder why it's got the biggest divorce rate in Europe, the worst binge drink in Europe, the most sexually transited diseases in all of Europe. We wonder why all these things are happening. It's easy to see why. It's because as a nation we are separating ourselves from God. And it seems to be every week the government brings out a new law or a new rule that further separates us from God. And any time a Christian on television or radio in the newspaper stands up and says something, I don't know if you ever watched the, that program uh, uh, at night, Question Time. A guy was on there the other week and standing up for morality and, and right living, and he was booed and hissed and shouted down. It's just, that's the nation, the way it's gone, separating themselves from God and from anything that's moral and righteous, and then we wonder why we're in the mess we're in. In Galatians 5 and 13 and 15 it says, But through love serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Churches, too, often fall apart. And the root of the reason is that someone separated themselves from God and His Word and has been working their own agenda. And so separation from God, separation from others. And it's not hard to see in this little country of ours how that creates all kinds of tensions, problems, difficulties, and prejudices and hatreds and bitternesses. But man's fall in Eden just didn't bring about separation from God and separation from each other. But it was so far-reaching in its effects that it brought about separation from the very earth itself. 
from nature. You see, way back in Genesis, right at the very beginning, in chapter 1, it tells us here in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now you may be able to train your little dog to do tricks, and you may go to a zoo and see those animals lying there. You may go to a circus and see the lion tamer crack his whip. But you wouldn't want to be in the forest where there's a bear loose, would you? You wouldn't want to be in the jungle where there's a tiger. We have not and do not and cannot dominate and subdue the earth the way God intended. And not only that, he said that because of sin that the earth would now bring forth briars. It says, Genesis 3, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. In the sweat of your face you shall eat it till you return to the ground. And so no matter how much we think we're in control of nature, it bites us back, doesn't it? And we find out that we haven't got the mastery over it. We find out many times that we're absolutely helpless in the face of it. As we have seen recently in all those natural disasters, there's nothing we can, absolutely nothing we can do to stop a volcano, a tsunami, a cyclone, a, a, a tornado. Nothing we can do. Can't even stop the rain. Nothing. We've been separated from it. Of course, in our greed and desire to exploit nature, we have stripped a rainforest, we have polluted our waters, our seas, our very atmosphere, we have permanently defaced and despoiled great swathes of beautiful landscapes. There's hardly a virgin territory left that man hasn't ruined in this world. We haven't been very good custodians of the earth that God gave us, have we? And no wonder Paul declares that for all creation is eagerly waiting for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and from decay. For we all know that creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So there's something out of kilter. There's something not right. This earth is not now as God intended. It's not now as God wills it in the future. Sin in the Garden of Eden brought separation from God. It brought separation from each other. And it brought separation from our power and dominion even over the very earth that we live on. And it seems to be almost every day we're destroying great swathes of it. Separation has been the problem. And it's always going to be the problem until we're reunited with God. I'm glad God's got a plan for that. God's got big plans for this world. 
But not only that, not only we separate it from earth, but there's separation from the heavens, the glorious heavens. Everything God created, He created for us to enjoy. Do you realize that the furthest human beings has ever traveled in the heavens is on a three-day journey to the moon. And to do that, it took a decade. Well, it took more than that, but it took a decade of focused, hard work and endeavor by the best brains in physics, in engineering, in science, in astronomy, in every field of endeavor you can imagine. It took millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and it took very, very brave men and women to go on just a three-day journey into the heavens, a paltry 240,000 miles. That's where the moon is from us today as we speak. It took all that effort, all that money, all that time just to go three days into the heavens. September the 5th, 1977. Two spacecraft craft were sent up by NASA. Voyager 1, Voyager 2. Both of them had specific tasks. Voyager's one task was to swing past the great gas giants of Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune. And having done that successfully, they said, well, what will we do with them now? What, what will happen to Voyager now? We'll just let it go on. As much as there's still some energy and life in it, let it go on, see how far it will go. That was 34 years ago. It's been traveling at 38,000 miles per hour. 38,000 miles an hour. And it's still going. It's gone 11 billion miles. Whenever it sends a signal back, it's that far away. It takes 16 hours to get to Earth and 16 hours to send a signal back. Good job. It doesn't need much direction, does it? And at 11 billion miles, it's just almost but not quite reached the end of our solar system. Our solar system is where our sun, the solar winds, and its effect begins to dissipate to nothing. And after 34 years, traveling at 38,000 miles an hour and traveling 11 billion miles, it's just about to get to the end of our tiny little pinprick solar system in our galaxy. We're really separated from the heavens. By the way, even at that incredible speed, even at that enormous distance of 11 billion miles, it still hasn't even gone halfway to the nearest star. <laughs> and that's an unmanned spacecraft. Just to show you how ridiculous this all is, how much we're separated from the very heavens. Consider this for a moment. Our atmosphere reaches from Earth to about just over 100 miles upwards, 102 miles to be exact. Now, if you think that's a lot, it really isn't. 
If you could shrink the earth down into the size of a basketball and put two coats, coats of paint on it, those two coats of paint would represent that 102 miles of atmosphere. So those two coats of paint is all that's separating you and me from oblivion. It's not very much, is it? Have you ever seen a photograph, maybe in a journal or a newspaper, of the International Space Station takes photographs of the Earth, and you see that little wispy, kind of blue-tinged atmosphere? If it wasn't for that, we would be cooked by radiation. We couldn't survive on this Earth. We'd be dead, cooked. Now that 100 and Plus miles, for the sake of science, is divided into four areas. Troposphere, stratosphere, mesosphere, ionosphere. The troposphere, the first bit above your head, 80% of all the atmosphere's mass is contained within that, this little bit. Almost all the moisture we have is in that little bit. All the weather we have is in that little bit. And if you're standing in the equator, it would only be about eight miles or so above your head, and where we are, it's only about five and a half miles above our head. It's not very far, is it? It's not very much. Sure it's not. If it wasn't for that little bit, we'd be dead right now, because that stops a lot of the radiation from coming to us. So it's very, very important, this tiny little bit of atmosphere. How important is it? Well, if you think that five and a half miles is quite a lot, it isn't. That's just about the height of Everest. Just over 29,000 feet. And you know what happens when climbers climb Everest. Many of them don't make it. There's many bodies lying up in the snows of Everest, dead. Lack of oxygen. Couldn't make it. Some I heard one guy, he was saying, he says, like, pulling a double-decker bus behind you. Every step, every step you take because of lack of oxygen. It's a killer. In fact, the highest human beings can live and exist is probably just over three miles. So we're greatly, greatly, greatly separated from the heavens. Now, Paul one time said, I was caught up into the third heaven. What do you mean by that? The first heaven is this bit I'm just telling you about, the atmosphere. The second heaven is the starry place. Beyond that, into the far reaches of the starry place. And beyond that is a third heaven, wherever it is. However far away it is, that's where God's throne is. That's the heaven that you and I are going to. And Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven and I saw things that I couldn't tell another human being. Jacob, when he lay down in that field and he got that stone for a pillow and he lay down and he looked up and he saw angels ascending and descending up and down into heaven. Distance wasn't any problem to them. No separation for them. Even Jesus on Ascension Day, when he was standing on the Mount of Olives, and suddenly, when he had given his last words to his disciples, suddenly he began to rise up, right up through 
the atmosphere, right beyond the starry skies and into the third heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52, he said, Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die. That's good news. It'll be good news for somebody. Hope it's us. Somebody says, I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the uppertaker. We shall not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment. In the blink of an eye or the twinkling of an eye, the author says, when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. We who are living will also be transformed. In a moment. The word moment is atomos, is where we get atom from. In an atom of time. That's quick, isn't it? So suddenly, all of that separation in the heavens, in an atom of time, will be no more. We'll bypass all of that in an atom of time. So the answer to all separation and all alienation is in one word, reconciliation. From that moment, man fell in the garden God's plan of reconciliation was put into place. And God promised that one would come that would break the power of the evil one who brought about that sin. And that one was his son. And his son came to reconcile us back to God the Father. So there would be no more separation no more alienation, no more running, no more hiding. But in communion, in fellowship with God. One day, we shall be reconciled with the earth. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that. It tells us the point when there's going to be great changes in the whole animal kingdom. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Little children shall play where the snakes have their nest, their hole. That can happen today. It can happen now. But it will happen one day. Because you see, this is the way that God intended. He intended for us to be in dominion, for us to be in control, for us to subdue, for us to be in charge. But ever since the fall, that hasn't happened. And it never can happen until God changes it. And so we see that in Isaiah chapter 11. One day we shall be reconciled with the very heavens. Where time and space will not mean what it means today. 
where our little feeble, tiny efforts, all that work to get a three-day journey into the heavens will be over in an atom of time. No more separation. One day we shall be reconciled with one another. Isaiah 2 and 4, it tells us that they shall beat their swords into plowshares. That'll be good. Could you imagine a world where there's no more wars? Where there's no more unrest? There's no more civil wars? Somebody says that's a great oxymoron. How can you have a civil war? I'm very civil about it. Sure there's not. But can you imagine a world that is totally and utterly at peace? Where nations are no longer fighting? Where peoples within a nation are no longer fighting? Well, that day's going to come. Only God can bring it about. We can't bring it about, but God can, and He will. Of course, the first act of reconciliation must be with God Himself. Without that, there can be no real or lasting reconciliation. Christ's death on the cross made that possible. That's what bridges a span between us and God and between God and us, because there's a great gulf between even in the Old Testament, even when God wanted to have fellowship with His own people because of sin, there had to be that separation. They could only approach God under very difficult and prescribed ways. They just could not walk into God's presence any time they wanted. But God wanted it so that we could do that. And the only way we can do that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come unto the Father except by me. Because no one paid the price for our sins except him. So he's the only one who has the right to say that. So in Romans chapter 5, where we turn to at the very beginning, Paul writes, verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Being born again of God's Spirit, being saved is a term we use. It simply means that we have been reconciled to God. No longer strangers. God is not some kind of big monster in the sky who's just waiting to bash you over the head. He's become our heavenly Father who loves us, who cares for us enough to send His own Son on the cross to die for us that we may be reconciled to Him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just over the pages a little bit, Verse 17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new cre cre creation, or a new creature, depending on your translation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, 
and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that all saying? Let me put that for you in a nutshell. God sent his son to die for us on the cross, that if we receive him as our savior, we will be reconciled to God. Having been reconciled to God, having had that act of reconciliation in our lives, then he says, now I give you the word of reconciliation. I am speaking to you today a word of reconciliation. I would love you to be reconciled to God. This is why I'm preaching this message, that you may be reconciled to God. That's why I'm telling you about Jesus down the cross, that you may be reconciled to God. That's the word of reconciliation. That's the preacher's job. That's every believer's job, whether that's in the workplace or whatever, however way you can do that. Whatever way you have a friendship with somebody who doesn't know Christ, you give them the word of reconciliation. You tell them that God wants to be reconciled with you. He loves you enough to send his son to die for you. He wants to be in relationship with you. That's the word of reconciliation. That's what we do. Some people may object to that. Some people may not like it. Some people may say, well, you can't go about telling people about God and Jesus and all the rest of it. They'll be offended. Well, that's our job. No, we don't want to offend people, but it's our job to tell them that God wants to be reconciled to them. It's the best message you could ever tell anybody. Some people may be offended by that, but that's the greatest message that they're ever going to hear in their lives if they only but knew it. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called on circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Let's talk about Jews and Gentiles, by the way. And that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is in the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached Peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. What does that mean? Paul here is speaking, and he's saying, listen, all this animosity, all this separation between Jew and Gentile, he says, Christ came to make you one in God through him. He says, there's a middle wall of partition it's been broken down. What is that middle wall of partition? You know what he's referring to? He's referring to the great temple. And in the great temple, of course, there was the court of the Gentiles. 
So a Gentile could get into that court in this Jewish temple, but he couldn't go any further than the court of the Gentiles. There was a big middle wall of partition that led into the court of the woman, and then beyond that, the court of the, the men of Israel, and then beyond that, there was priests, and beyond that, the holy place. So there was, it was sectioned off. So the Gentiles could only go as far as that wall, could not go any further. In fact, there was a big sign in that wall warning them if they go any further, they could put themselves at risk of being put to death. So it was a serious thing. Paul says that middle wall of partition is not there anymore. No matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, black or white, I'm just adding that to it, male or female, slave or free, doesn't matter. He says, when you come to Christ, you're all one in Christ. Remember when Jesus died on the cross? Remember one of the things that happened? Remember the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom? Showing that the way into the holiest was made. Only the priest could go in there once a year, but that was now open. What was God doing in all of this? Trying to end that separation. Trying to bring reconciliation to us and to God. So there's no difference. So the man or the woman who accept Christ, it doesn't matter what your background has been, it doesn't matter what color you are, it doesn't matter what status you have, none of that matters to God. What matters to God is you're one together in Christ. You're one family together in Jesus Christ, His Son. And the final reading is from Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, that's to Christ, all the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne they worshipped. All nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. From every nation, from every color, from every background, from every social standing. All one in Christ before the throne of God. No more separation brought together through the reconciliation of Christ's work on the cross. And so that's man's greatest dilemma today. How can I be reconciled to God? And the answer simply is, come to Jesus Christ. He's the reconciler. He's the one who paid the price to bring God and you together. That's why he had to come as a man. In fact, I'll say this in closing. You believers know this very well. He still has that human body. He didn't just come to this earth and take a human body and go back to heaven and get rid of it. He still has a human body. He still so wants to identify with us. He still lives in a human body. Neil's scars are still in his hands. So who better to take the hand of a holy God than to take the hand of a sinful man and bring them together? 
than the one who was the God-man, the one who was God in human flesh, the one who lived this life on this earth and felt our pains, was tempted with our temptations, and successfully came through all of that so he may take the hand of a holy God and the hand of a sinful man, forgive man, and bring him back to God. That's the word of reconciliation. And that's the message that every believer's got today to reach out, to tell man that God wants to be reconciled to him. Amen. Let's pray.